Thanks, Rodney. Hey, go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. My name is Luke. If we haven't met, I know there's some of you I haven't met yet. Look forward to maybe meeting you after the service if you're still here. And uh, hey, just I know I say this every few weeks. I wasn't here last week, but typically every few weeks during the summer, I try to remind and encourage us to be praying for the people of Legacy. The summer times typically do, I mean, more than half of us are gone. It's July. It's the end of July. A lot of travel this time of year, lots of people gone. This is also the time of year that not only do we want to pray for the safety of people as they travel, whether it's on vacation or to be with family, but also to pray for connection. This is when a lot of people grow in disconnection. A lot of people get disconnected this time of year. The news is calling it a friend recession. I don't know if you've seen that. Feel free to make fun of that later on on your own. But there, there is something true about the fact that when summer comes, June, July, August, people feel just radically disconnected, right? It's something for us to pray for as we pray for our people, that they feel connected, that they build and invest in relationships even during the summertime, and that we pray for people's safety as they travel. So I just want to remind you to be praying for that as you pray for legacy. Um, but listen, if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus 15. That's going to be where we're at today. Exodus 15. We're going to kind of dance a little bit through 15, 16, and 17, but we're going to spend most of our time in the 16th chapter as we're working through this series on the book of Exodus, which is, although it's old, a contemporary story. It's a story for us and it's a story for today. It's the story of God drawing people out of slavery, drawing them out of oppression and pulling them close to himself. It is God showing himself as a, as a redeemer, which is the key phrase and the key word really in this whole chapter is God is a redeemer. And so Exodus is going to be very helpful for us today. Exodus is going to show us Jesus very clearly today. And I think probably the punchline, the main phrase that we're going to see, I'm just going to put it up on the screen now because I want it to be before your mind, is the second verse of the 16th chapter. Exodus 16.2, Moses says this, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. I want you to focus on that word grumbled. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And what are they grumbling? What are they saying? Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Right? Is God for me or is he not? Am I going to get what I want or am I not going to get what I want? You see, what we're going to learn today is that wilderness living, which they are in right now, they're no longer enslaved by this part of our story. They've been broken free from slavery. They've pushed through the sea. Now they're in the wilderness. Brand new thing for them. They've never been in the wilderness before. But what we're going to find out is that wilderness living and grumbling, they run together. They, they kind of hold hands, right? Now, this is going to be new to Israel. They're still kind of air drying the clothes that they wore. The Red Sea had just parted. They're freshly amazed at what God has just done. And yet they find themselves grumbling really quick. And that's because it just doesn't take very long to get to grumbling, right? It's a quick pivot for the human heart. Even when we're freshly saved, freshly amazed at what God has done, we're faced with this super deep provision, we can move to grumbling. We could be complainers. We could be very good at it. And so one of the big reasons this is happening in the hearts of the people we're about to read today is because God did not rescue them straight into paradise. They didn't go straight from slavery to paradise. They moved through the wilderness, right? 
The wilderness came. Now, why would God do something like that? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why would God not just relocate them from being enslaved to the promised land and skip the whole 40 years they're roaming around the desert? Why push them through the wilderness? One of the reasons, there's a few, one of the reasons is to knock the Egypt off of them. That's what they'd been soaking in as Egyptian culture for over 400 years. God was, and you'll remember when we looked at the plagues, God was showing them, I'm not like the other gods you used to have. The ones that were silent, the ones that were powerless, the ones that couldn't help you, the ones that couldn't save you. I'm a different God. And you're a different people. You're going to look different. You're going to behave different. You're going to worship different. Everything is different. So he's going to chisel their old life off of them. In the wilderness, let me just tell you something that you already know. The wilderness is great for growth. It's fantastic for growth, right? This couldn't be more appropriate than it is for us today. Exodus is a contemporary story. When I became a Christian, I had to learn a new way to live. A better way for sure, but it was a new way. I wasn't used to it, just like you weren't. This new God, the God of the gospel, the God of your Bible, isn't the kind of God that I used to serve. I used to serve the gods of money and identity and security and comfort, and this God is different, and this would mean a wilderness for me. Because you can't learn faith without a wilderness. We've talked about this. You can't grow in this thing called trust without a wilderness. I was talking to Jake yesterday, and Jake got to preach up here last week. Super thankful for Jake. I'm super thankful for our communicators here, Jake and Randy and Sean. I mean, these guys that can come up here and really do a good, diligent job with the word of God. But, but I told Jake, I said, you did something very special for our people. You let them into your life. You gave them a gift by kind of giving them a window to see a season of wilderness for you and your bride. I was very thankful that he did something like that. But that was a season that was tough for them. He would also say that's where they learned trust. That's where they learned faith. That's where they learned that God would steady them, that God would be their all, that they could enjoy Jesus in the midst of deep confusion and pain. I mean, do you remember the first time you needed something desperately and God was all you had to lean on? It's a wilderness. It's a wilderness. We, we all carry some Egypt into our new life. And God is gracious and caring and thoughtful by chiseling that off of us and doing so in a wilderness, positioning us in a wilderness. And, and the whole idea behind a wilderness, because I don't want you to think spatially, no trees, dirt, Right, that's where I grew up. I grew up in West Texas. Visually, it was a wilderness, right? I don't want you to have that in your mind. A wilderness is any kind of a transition between what you used to know and what is ahead of you, right? It's, it's what in sociology and in anthropology they call a liminal space, right? Liminality is this threshold between everything that you used to know, everything that was new to you is before you, but everything that you used to know is behind you, and you're stuck in this in-between, and the in-between isn't comfortable, right? Anthropology will say it's kind of like being in a hallway between two doors. The door you just came out, you know you can never go back, and the door in front of you, and you don't know what's behind it, you're stuck in the hallway, and because it's painful, they call it the hell in the hallway, right? And whenever we find ourselves as Christians in the hell in the hallway, when we are no longer lost and depraved, but we are not home yet, we find ourselves in a wilderness. And guess what that does? Provokes grumbling. Grumbling comes in the wilderness. And I think one of the things that's important that I want you to know as we move through this passage, 
when we grumble, when we complain, we think, we think we're doing it to ourselves, right? I mean, when we grumble, most of the time it's under our breath. We're alone in our car. We're doing something out in the lawn. Whatever it is, I don't even care. But we usually think it's just, a, it's a word with ourselves. Or if you're comfortable with your spouse or somebody else, you grumble or you complain in front of them. We think it's private. We think it's victimless. Let me tell you, it's a conversation piece between you and the Lord when you grumble. When you complain and when you grumble, that's a conversation you're having with God. Make no mistake. That's what we're going to see, especially in the passage today. And it's something I'm giving you from experience because I grumble a lot. I'm a big grumbler. I'm very good at it, right? It started as a hobby when I was a kid. And then when as I grew, I just got to be really professional and proficient at this thing called complaining. It's not my most impressive look, for sure. It's something that I have to work on quite a bit. A lot of you know I was on vacation last week, and we went to Charleston, which meant we had to drive through Asheville, right? And what was supposed to be a six-hour drive, according to Google, turned into a nine-hour drive because of traffic jams and blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. What made me most mad is that little stretch of highway between Knoxville and Asheville when you're cruising through the mountains. That's supposed to be a beautiful drive. I, I'll put it up there in the top ten in the world probably. You're in the Smokies for crying out loud. And it bends and twists and it, you feel like you're in Narnia. Just driving your car. You're like, this is life. I'm so glad I live here. And as you're driving. But what I love most about that stretch of road is in the left lane it says no trucks left lane. Right? You've all seen it. And if you were to drop out of your car and measure how big those letters are, they'd be like six foot big. It just looks small because you're driving fast. Huge letters. No trucks left lane. And guess what I did the whole stretch of the road? I complained and I grumbled because every truck was determined to be in that left lane, right? There would be a truck and he's like, you know what, no. I'm going two-tenths of a mile per hour faster than this truck in front of me. So I'm going to take nine miles to pass this truck and everybody behind me will certainly understand. And you could just hear me fuming, right? No truck, I must have said it 100, no trucks left lane. This guy thinks he's special. He thinks his truck is different than everyone else's truck. His truck is just like everyone else's truck. You know, and my, my kids and my wife, they all have headphones on. They're ignoring me totally. They're so used to my perfected grumbling, right? Or the traffic jams. I'm sitting, I'm sitting, I'm sitting. I'm thinking there must have been like a chicken truck that turned over, chickens running everywhere. I mean, it's taking forever. And by the time the traffic releases and you can go the speed limit again, guess what's there? Nothing. Nothing. You're just going. There's nothing here. And I grumbled and I grumbled. And I gr my wife, not a grumbler, not a complainer. You know what she said? I wonder what the Lord is showing us in this moment. <laughs> I wonder what the Lord is doing in this moment. Boy, it bugged me so bad. I thought the Lord... Nothing. He's not doing it. I'm not getting what I want. That's what I know. I want something and I'm not getting it. That's all I'm talking about. That's all I know. I think what happens is, is we feel as if grumbling is just saying something that's obvious, something that's true. If it's true, we're just simply stating that it's happening. And that's safe. And it's okay. We're just being honest, right? Trucks are they're not supposed to be in the left lane. Traffic jams, they're mostly unnecessary. These are true statements. It's hot outside. True statement. Bitcoin is brutal right now. <laughs> true statement. All kinds of true statements. And we think that because it's truth as we see it, that it's okay to just let it rip and complain and grumble. Listen, this passage today, among many passages, it reminds me 
of what my grumbling is really saying. You see, it's not always telling the truth. A lot of times it's telling a lie about God. It's telling a lie about God. And I know that sounds like a leap. So we're going to explain it through the passage today. Because barely into the wilderness season, Israel is already painfully, consciously aware of their dwindling water supply. Soon it's going to be food. These are basic needs. God knows about these basic needs. God has always cared for them and these basic needs. And still they are grumbling. Why? Because it's natural to us. It's natural to the human heart all the way back to the garden. So look in your Bible, Exodus 15, verse 22. We're just going to read a little bit here, a little bit there, and we're going to thread this storyline together in a way that you see that this is talking about a people very far from you, and it is also talking to you. It's also talking to you. Verse 22, the word of the Lord says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness... And found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. Look at verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water. And 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Let's pause just for a moment. We don't really know why a log would do this, right? Honestly, nerds have tried to figure this out with some chemical equation to no avail. I'm just going to submit that it was a miracle. I know that's outlandish. It's crazy. Let's just call it a miracle that it would turn undigestible water into something that could be drink uh, drunk but that's that's what happened in fact right after this he proves his provision even further by bringing them to an oasis that would have a bunch of trees and a bunch of springs and i'm sure that the grumbling stopped for about 12 minutes right i'm sure they had a brief moment where they were reminded that god is thoughtful and god could be trusted and that his plan is better than their plan i'm sure that happened but I could tell you how quickly it can come to grumbling. If I was there, if I was with them, I would have looked and I thought, only 70 trees, huh? 70 trees. And you chose palm trees, it looks like, for this oasis. Have you ever tried to get shade under a palm tree? No, you haven't, right? It's like getting shade under a pole. They don't really give a, I mean, oak trees, Lord, would have been better, let's be honest, right? I mean, palm trees. And we're all supposed to drink out of the same springs? It's a little unsanitary. I mean, we're in a day and age right now where we have to think about those things. That's, and what about tomorrow? I mean, sure, you're taking care of us today, but how are we supposed to look at tomorrow? You see how good I am at grumbling? Right? It's natural to me. It's natural to all of us. This is the pattern, not just of this series of passages, but it's the pattern for our heart. People grumble. God supplies. People grumble more. People complain, God shows himself to be a promise keeper, we continue to complain. That's the pattern. That's why passages like this in the gospel story is a grace to people like you and to people like me. Pervasive, complaining grumblers. What is it that you find yourself inwardly complaining about most in your wilderness experience? This liminal space that you stand in, that is between the place that you were broke free from, being enslaved, 
in the place that you were called to go, a promised land, this wilderness that you live in? What do you find yourself most angry about, most anxious about? What is it for you? I'll tell you what, the grumbling heart says a lot of things. But no matter what the context is, the grumbling heart says, my way is better, your way is dumb. God, my way is better. Your way is a little bit ridiculous, let's be honest. My way is better. You're obviously not all that smart. You're obviously not all that powerful. My way is better. That's what the grumbling heart does. Whether you are grumbling against a world leader or a stoplight or whatever it is, that's what it says. My way is better than God's way. And the fact that I'm in this place not getting what I want to get in this moment shows that if I had my way, it would be better than God's way. The reason we think that way and the reason we can get there so quick is because it's in us from the garden. Adam was the first person to have a complaining, grumbling heart. That's what it was in the garden. When, when he sinned, when they sinned and the cosmos cratered under the weight of that sin, it was Adam saying, you're holding us back. God, I mean, you're good-ish, but you're really holding us down. And we would be better off if we had, what, our plan. My plan is better than your dumb plan. That's what happened, and never since we've had it echoing in our hearts. Wasn't a content heart that we find in the garden. It was a grumbling one, a complaining one, a mistrusting one. And so soon the people of Israel, they're going to find their attention going from water to a lack of food, right? Look at chapter 16, verse 4. We see it say this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Go to verse 12. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to another, What is it? That's what the word manna means, by the way, is what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it, With an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Go to verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that you may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout the generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years 
till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Okay, manna's pretty mysterious. It's just pretty mysterious. Kind of like the wood that was thrown in the water. We can only explain this as a miracle. The psalmist in the 78th Psalm calls it abundant bread of the angels. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that this was happening. And they would eat of this miracle for 40 years until they arrived at their location. And then just as quickly as it started, just as magically as it showed up, it would stop. We see this in Joshua 5. Stay where you're at. Joshua 5, 12, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So this wood was, wood, this food was provisional. It wasn't meant to last forever. It's also miraculous. It wasn't supposed to be easily explained. And it was also something to teach them to daily depend, daily trust, daily have faith that God would supply. Right? Every day. Every single day for 40 years. And I'm sure the grumbling stopped for about two days. I'm sure it did. They were reminded of how good God is. But there's just so much to complain about here, isn't there? What if you don't like wafers and honey? What if you're not a big fan of coriander, right? What if you like a a little diversity in your diet, I mean, God, why couldn't you have just delivered it to our front door? Why do we got to go hunt it down? That's weird, right? Why can't, why can't you just put it in our pantry? Why can't it just show up? What if I want to fast on Tuesday and maybe eat on Sunday? What if I want to vary it up? What if I, well, I mean, what if, God, I mean, it's just, it's unfair. This whole manna thing, it's unfair. I think I'd do it differently if I was God. Listen, I know that sounds crazy. They're going to get there eventually. These people get there. That's the heart that they carry in their chest. It's the same one we have in our chest as well. You see, we're supposed to read this and feel aggravated, aghast a little bit. We're supposed to have that reaction. We're supposed to have a commentary that we develop to say, look how ridiculous this is. It's a bad look for them. There's there's no reason to doubt God, no reason to hoard, no reason to have stress or anxiety. Just trust him and obey him. The reason this is important is because we're looking into a mirror. This is us. We are them. This is talking about me. It's talking about you. So yeah, the reaction, our reaction, is supposed to be exhausted a little bit by how ridiculous their grumbling is in the face of deep provision. Supposed to. But we're also supposed to see that we're coming face to face with ourselves. Then after water and food, he gives them something that they didn't even ask for, but they needed desperately, and that's rest. He gives them a Sabbath rest. He reintroduces the gift of the Sabbath. Remember, this isn't the first time they'll come into contact with it. Genesis would be. That is a creation institute, right? Which is why later on in the Ten Commandments, he will say, remember the Sabbath. This isn't their first exposure, right? They kind of understand what the Sabbath is from what God had done in creation. But it had been 430 years Since they had a Sabbath. They were making bricks every day out in the hot sun. That was their existence. So let's look at 16. Go to verse 23. So we're going back a little bit. He said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. 
And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside. This is the manna they're talking about. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will find or you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, of course, right? But they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Well, they do until they don't. They do until they don't which we'll find out later on in Israel's history. You see, resting seems like a real quick way to come in last when it comes to production. It just does. It doesn't seem like a very good idea. In fact, I don't envision Pharaoh being this champion of holistic health care of his labor force. He didn't strike me as that kind of a guy. Maybe you too, right? He kind of didn't strike me as the guy that was okay coming in third place when it comes to national production. That's because he wasn't. Not producing when all the other nations would produce, that's going to be one of the things that differentiates Israel from everyone else. The fact that they are not working and they are not producing and God is producing for an unproductive people, that's supposed to set them apart. This is supposed to be a gift, a gift of God to them. And as we'll see later, it also points to a better and future rest, not constrained to a day, but a person. For you and me, the Sabbath is... No longer a day in and of itself and exclusively a day, but a person. Jesus is our Sabbath. Uh, he, He is our ability to rest instead of work. Before Christ, all you knew was working to get the approval and the smile from God. To be right before God meant to work. It meant to climb a ladder. It meant to show up to things. It meant to say things, memorize things, give money. Whatever it was that you had in your mind, this makes me right before God is work. It's work, it's labor, it's making bricks in the sun. Jesus comes along and he says, my burden is light. I will do the work and now you get to rest. You get to rest. Now you live a life as a Christian where you no longer have to work. No more ladders to climb. God has done all the work through his son in Christ so that we can finally rest. And that's the big picture view of a Sabbath. But back then before Jesus, all they knew No other nations resting, just us. Everyone else is producing and we're supposed to be resting. I mean, we get this, not even today do we celebrate rest that much, do we? Not over productivity anyway. One of the things I'm most fascinated in when I, the the little research I get to do on this subject, which I know it's a nerd thing to be excited about, but I am fascinated by some nations and their recent attempts to tinker with the work week and make it shorter, right? So we're starting to see that a lot, especially in places like Iceland. Iceland just finished this gigantic study they've been doing for a long time where they took 66 companies and almost 3,000 employees and they shortened it from a five-day workday to a four-day workday to see what would happen to the production overall, right? Punchline, it didn't change very much. That's what they discovered. Japan's doing the same thing. New Zealand's actually playing with a different schema as well when it comes to a work week. This is what was interesting in the studies that I read. It's all measured by productivity. Not by whether it's good for the person or whether God has given it as a gift, 
but whether it changes the needle of how much we can produce. How little can we work and still get the most done? That's what the studies are showing. I mean, just think about America, right? We have a 40-hour work week, allegedly, right? 40-hour work week. By the way, that comes from 1940. That was when it was established in law because there would have to be some overtime regulations on employers. But it, had great, it, it got traction long before 1940. Henry Ford was the first to really say, 40 hours is the magic number. Anything after that, you'll get more done, but it's diminishing returns, right? And then by the time World War II came, everybody was working a 40-hour work week, right? But even then, what do we see in something like that? Humanity looks at work and rest through the lens of production. Production. Rest is what we do when the work is finished. Of course, the work is never really finished, right? I'll tell you what, if Iceland discovers that productivity drops 20% with a four-day work week, back to five they go. Guarantee it. Back to five they go. How do I know that? That's exactly what happens to Israel. That's exactly what happens in the Bible. 900 years after this, Nehemiah will come back to Jerusalem, find the city in ruins. Guess what else he'll find? They've blown off the Sabbath. Back to business as usual. They abandoned that many moons earlier. Why did they do that? Productivity. They got to keep up with all the other nations. All the others. Why? Because God's plan is dumb. Their plan is better. It's effectively what's going. It's a, it's a manifestation of the grumbling heart. And later there would be great grumbling, even in this nation, over the gift of the Sabbath. Why do we have to rest today? Why can't I just make a living the way I want to make a living? What if I'm okay working every day? I love my job. I don't need a rest from my job. These are the things that you will hear. You even hear it today. God, your way is dumb. My way is better. You see, grumbling, complaining is serious. It's not private. And it's not victimless. It's serious. It's serious. It's mentioned in our grander passage over a dozen times. These people grumbled about Pharaoh. They grumbled about how Moses got involved with Pharaoh. They grumbled about the Red Sea. They grumbled about bitter water. They grumbled about the food. Water again, food again. They grumbled about the leadership of Moses. Lots of grumbling. Look at verse 2 of chapter 16. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots, whatever that is, and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the, this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Interesting. We're going to learn a couple things in this. First of all, later on, he say, hey, listen, this is what Moses and, 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 and Aaron say. They say, you're not grumbling against us, just so you know. Your, the, the little complaint box that you're filling out complaints and putting it in there, it's not against me and this guy, it's against the Lord. Your grumbling is not against us, it's against God. One thing that we learn in this is that grumbling is not horizontal, it's vertical. That's how we started this whole thing off. We think we're having a conversation with ourselves and those around us, but it's with God that we have a problem. When we complain, we think we are throwing grenades in different directions, upset with our government, traffic lights, anti-vaxxers, vaxxers, whatever, pastors, politicians, you can fill in the blank. We can, we can grumble about quite a bit, but the reality is we're shaking our fist at God because his plans are dumb and our plans are brilliant and we're not getting what we want. And that's what's going on here. Israel is saying we had it better when things were our way. Meat, bread, 
I had it better. I had it better. Moses says, the problem's not with me, man. Your problem's with God. You know, take it up with him. Also, the second and last big lesson I'm going to pull from that is that grumbling is a form of amnesia. Not only did they not remember what God had done, they misremembered things that God did not do, right? Meat pots? Come on. You read, they could count their ribs. <laughs> Bread to the full? Don't think that was happening either. They were cooking in the sun and dying by the droves. This stuff didn't even happen. They're saying, hey, remember, remember back when we didn't have to depend on God? <laughs> those, were, those were the days, weren't they? Boy, we had it made before Moses showed up. It's a grumbling heart. It's a grumbling heart. Listen, if you catch yourself daydreaming about what you would do without Jesus chaining you to this life right now, you're in this passage. If it's you, if you catch yourself imagining a life without the constraints of God, this is you. Maybe you daydream or you imagine what it would look like if you could have one last fling Worship money. Stop with the things that please God and start with the things that please your flesh. If you daydream about one more season of doing that, you were here. Reminiscing about things that did not exist for you. Or maybe you just don't like your lot in life. Maybe you didn't get a fair shot. You look across the room and someone else has it made and you do not. Because God's way is dumb and your way is brilliant. Had it better without God holding you down. That's a silent protest in your heart. But it's not private. And this is the lie that the enemy told Adam. And it's why this very people will build a golden calf very soon. Very soon. Again, we're supposed to be a little bit turned off by this grumbling. Because it's in the face of such a deep provision. God has done so much and they're grumbling. If God didn't do anything and they're grumbling, whatever. It's not even newsworthy. But he has done so much. And we are them. We don't like the nature of God's provision. We'll always see yesterday as a better day. The way we had it in our mind is better than God's way, his plan. The Adam in us will grumble when we do not get what we want. This is a 2021 problem. This is why Paul, by the way, when he speaks to the Philippian church, he says, do everything without grumbling and complaining, right? Everything. Hear him now. Do everything without grumbling and complaining. Why do you think he had to take the time to write that? Because he heard an awful lot of grumbling and complaining from a church that was one generation from the cross. <laughs> one generation from the cross. That means it's very pertinent for us today. Because we are a people that say, is the Lord among us? We're not. We're not. So what do we do with this grumbling in the face of such deep provision? We get to learn from them because their grumbling comes to a little bit of a head, at least in this chapter it comes to a head. And it's where we see the deepest provision. And I think it's going to speak directly to us. So look in chapter 17. We're going to jump into verse 3. But the people, it says, thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink 
And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Friends, listen. This is a people that have seen plagues, 10 of them. And then the gifts and the miracles before the plagues. They saw a sea cut in half, manna, quail, an oasis, bitter water turned sweet. They are seeing deep provision, capital letters, deep provision, and still saying, is the Lord among us or not? Because I'm not getting my way. I have a plan in my mind. This isn't it. I think God's way is dumb and my way is better. So God tells Moses to strike a rock and water will come out of it and the people will be satisfied. Right? Listen, this sounds mysterious and odd. And it is. And again, nerds have tried to come up with some geological answer behind why this happens. It's a miracle. And it's not just a miracle. It's not just supernatural. It's actually prophetic as well. The, the beauty of this moment is not tied to this moment. Because eventually we will see a time where the rock of Christ will be struck once to make provision for a needier and more rebellious people. And Jesus is the better rock being struck for your deepest need as a form of God's deepest provision. This provision would satisfy us once and again and show that God is not just a promise maker, but he's a promise keeper. And yes, he is among us. It's a glimpse of the gospel. It's a glimpse of the gospel. Not, not just there, but Jesus would also be our manna, our bread, our sustenance for us every day. Because we can't live on just bread alone. He'll be there every day. As much as you want, you have him. As much as you want, you can collect Christ. Jesus would be our Sabbath, the place where our work for a new life stops. And he becomes our rest, where we can celebrate this rest. You see, the gospel, God's good news for mankind through the person of Jesus, the gospel story answers the question of, is the Lord among us or not? That's mankind's question, isn't it? Is the Lord among us or not? The gospel sweeps in and answers it and says, yes, Jesus is a better Moses who will lead a people through a different wilderness, teaching them to be satisfied, content, trusting, faithful, to enjoy him in all things, to be dependent on a very good God. And as good news as that is, our news gets gooder. The good news on top of the good news is when you grumble the most, God does not scale back his love for you. He does not retreat his love because you're complaining. He doesn't look at you in disappointment and say, well, I mean, I was like this close to you, but until you get your head on, I'm going to be a little bit further away. Good luck. Good luck. He doesn't do that. That's what makes the gospel so good. What makes it even gooder than that is you're free to fail. Hear me now. You're free to fail or the gospel's not the gospel at all. You are free to fail or the gospel is not even good news. What I mean is, is you can leave this room and complain for the rest of your life until you drop dead. You can do that and God does not love you any less. He does not love you any less. But not only is the gospel good news because of that, the gospel is not powerful if you're not free to change too. You are free to fail or the gospel is not the gospel. And you are free to grow or there's no power in the gospel. You're free to change from a grumbling heart. I'm free to change from a grumbling, complaining heart. We're free. We're free. Let me ask you, where are you most angry right now in your wilderness? 
most contemptuous? Where are you most anxious? Those will be the lightning rods of grumbling for you. Those are pretty deep emotions. That's what we'll find provoking the grumbling. We might not say, is the Lord among us or not, but we will say it. We will say it. As I say in every sermon, there is room for us to repent before a passage like this, before a gospel like this, right? A moment where we can carry our Egypt to the foot of Jesus and say, yes, you are among us. God has made sure that you are among us. Not only that, given us the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. The same power of God that raised Jesus from a dark tomb is alive in you. So yeah, God is, God is among us. God is among us. We have all we need. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our bread. He is our water. He is our guidance. He is our leadership. He is our promise. He is our hope. He is here. He will always give us what we need. His provision is deep. And listen, if you're watching online or if you're here, because I don't know everybody, and you would say you are far from Christ, but what we call Christ-haunted, you, you have questions, you're trying to figure it out, maybe you're skeptical. I need to say, without Jesus as your rest, you still have to work. Still have to work. Let me just say also, your work will never be enough. He works on our behalf, so we are finally free to rest. Which is why when Jesus says in Matthew, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that is good news. Who reads that and says, yeah, I'm kind of tired of that passage. I mean, done it, read it, been there, I get it. No. No, I've been doing this for over a quarter of a century. And I'm telling you, every time I read that, how light his yoke and his burden is, there is something in me. There is something in me that says, yes, Lord, God, and I need more of it. I need more of that. Without Jesus, the burden and the weight of the work to be right before God is absolutely unbearable. It's nightmarish. It is a hell. And if that's you, that's why you're so exhausted all the time. That's why you're exhausted. So I'd submit that you give your life to God, enter his rest by trusting in his work for you. But go ahead and stand with me. We're going to cut this part of our sermon down and move into the next. We're going to take communion. Randy, can I get one of those? If you came in and you forgot or didn't even see these, we have some communion cups because of COVID. So we have these rip and sip cups. And so if you are a Christian, and you don't even have to be a part of Legacy. Thank you, buddy. You don't even have to be a part of Legacy. But if you want to take communion with us as a Christian, just raise your hand and this good-looking guy will give you a cup. If you are not a Christian, and you're just, or you don't even know what communion is, don't worry about this. Don't, don't worry about this moment. I would submit that you take Christ seriously more than this moment seriously, okay? This is what we call a family moment or a family meal where we all get together and we just kind of celebrate not just what God has done for us in the cross and the empty tomb, but what he is doing for us and building a better place, a better banquet where we all party again with no sin attached to us. And so we're going to take communion together, and I'm going to pray with you, and then we'll go straight into worship. But there is a lot to repent for. If you find yourself leaving a service like this as a Christian, and you are not repenting for the complaining in your heart or the grumbling in your heart, it's because you do not have a total, honest, and accurate view of yourself. Really do an audit. What is making you most angry, most anxious right now? 
And then ask yourself, does it have me mad that God's plan is God's plan? Where do I find myself trying to edit and insert my plan over God's because his looks ridiculous and he's holding me back? Where is that source of grumbling for you? So, Father, we thank you for these elements that represent something much bigger than these elements. There's nothing magical about this, nothing like the wood we see and the manna we see and the water from the rocks. This is just juice and a wafer that we ordered from a company that shipped it in and now we have it. But, Father, it does represent something much bigger. And that we are excited to take part in right now. As we take the bread, it symbolizes a body that was struck, the better rock. The better rock that was struck, destroyed, and put down into death so that we would live and triumph and enjoy a place at a table we don't have any business being in. Adopted into a family that we didn't have to earn our way into, redeemed from an enemy that we didn't even really run that far from. You had to rescue us when we were running towards the enemy. This broken body represents so much. And so we take it in remembrance of you. Go ahead and take the bread. And Lord, we thank you for this juice that represents blood that was drained from a king. Our general our champion over death. And because of that moment on the cross, we are free from working to be pleasurable in your eyes, God. Because of what you have done for us, we are free. We are free. You've done all the work. We are passively rescued, grabbed, adored, loved. You've done the work. No longer do I have to wake up and try to be impressive to you, try to perform to you, try to sin as little as possible just to get a smile from you. But you adore us, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. So now we can rest. So we take this juice in remembrance of what you've done and in anticipation of a better day before us. A better day where we can rally and party and sing like they did when they crossed the Red Sea for the very first time and we could look at each other in, in each other's eyes with no sin attached to us where hope is finally within our hands, where we have no despair, no depression, no sadness, no loneliness, no, no anything that can pull our attention away from the grandeur and the glory that you give off. We anticipate that moment. So we take this in remembrance and in anticipation. Go ahead and take the juice. And Lord, we leave so much in this room. When we leave, there is room to repent. I catch myself grumbling for a lot, even this weekend, looking, just doing a self-audit, realizing, golly, I really grumble a lot. I grumble a lot. And it's run unchecked. I've not taken thoughts captive. I just let complaints roll off the tongue as if it's a victimless crime. God, I know I'm not alone. Sometimes, Father, we just feel like you're not doing a good enough job. We want our plan because we want what we want. The human heart wants what it wants. But, Lord, we turn. In this moment, we turn. And I realize we'll have to repent from this a million times before you collect us all. But we repent this day. We choose you. We trust you. We have faith in you. We believe you. We rest in you. We take our deep provision from you this day. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you. And as we worship, we do so. We 
we do so with a heart lifted towards you and a deep appreciation and trust for the work that you've done for us in Jesus. It's your name we pray.